0: Well, we've been working our way through the book of First Peter for, for uh, quite a number of weeks now, and today we come to the end. And the end is a, a, a wonderful, fabulous, triumphant, it's a glorious passage. And I um, have been looking forward greatly to talking about it because it's just full of such life and vigour. I asked Cheryl to read um, a couple of weeks ago, not because... I was tired of getting Karen to read my wife, nor did I know that she would be away today, that's just coincidental. But I asked Cheryl because I've only heard Cheryl read once before, but I think she's just possibly the best reader I've ever heard. I think it's just she's got a gift. Cheryl's going to read to us first Peter chapter five from one to eleven.
1: to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care serving as overseers not because you must but because you are willing as God wants you to be not greedy for money but eager to serve Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because... God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. "'Resist him, standing firm in the faith "'because you know that your brothers throughout the world "'are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. "'And the God of all grace, "'who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, "'after you have suffered a little while, "'will himself restore you "'and make you strong, firm and steadfast.'" To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen.
0: Amen indeed. Thank you, Bob. (coughs) Terrific. I want to read that last line from the the Nganadara Bible, a language that's spoken in Central Australia, and I've done this occasionally but not for a while, because I, um, I think that it's so easy for us to forget, over east as they say, that there are indigenous people with a thriving faith in the middle of our continent, and we know so little about that, and it was my um, the, the great privilege of my life to be taught the language by these faithful, literate, articulate people in Central Australia when I was young. The last line that Cheryl just read reads this way in the Ngarrindjeri Bible: "Lanka mama kurka Purpa tirtu ninama yua It's not simply a few lines at the end to you know sign off you know you know when you get to the end of an email and you're never quite sure whether to put your sincerely or regards or warm love or these days i get the one that says regs do you ever get that it's so tedious isn't it regs so it's not this isn't simply a, a signing off it's a it's a culmination of everything that we've been looking at for several weeks now. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. A statement that God is indeed the final answer, the culmination of everything, the the amen. This morning's message is titled, Life Living with Assurance. And the assurance that we're talking about is verse 10, where Peter writes, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. It's the word will that's assurance because assurance is a promise. Assurance is a, a promise given to provide strength. Peter writes that God will strengthen us. God will restore, support and establish us. That's the promise. But, and it's a big but, because it's not as simple as that. As we've been reading through Peter's letter, I've been struck by its rigour. I think it's, it's very succinct. It's, it's a tight sort of letter, but it's rigorous. It places demands on us as Christians it doesn't allow us to wriggle out easily and do our own thing. It's quite a austere writing, I find. Peter begins w- with an extraordinary statement way back in the first chapter. But the very first verse says, To God's elect exiles. It's weeks and weeks since we were at that point. But isn't that, a, isn't that an extraordinary beginning? To God's elect, the chosen people of God, and in the very next word, Exiles. And of course to be exiled in the ancient world was to be banished from every support that you knew to some other place where you you just go and sort yourself out, you're not our problem anymore. Terrible hardship in being in exile. So God's elect exiles. And it goes that way through the book. We are God's chosen people and yet, and yet, to to walk with Christ is a demanding path a glorious path, a victorious path, a triumphant path, but a path that's laden with test, with expectation, with challenge, with loyalty to the Father, with His call for purity. It's not just simply hallelujah. There's more to it than that. There's a fundamental difference between assurance and reassurance and the best way I think I can try and explain that is with an illustration from my own life a rather painful one to do with ball games now me and ball games are as far apart as the east is from the west as the bible says I'm the only person in Victoria who doesn't have a football team I don't even know the difference between Aussie rules and rugby and footy, it's just a blur to me. I just have no idea. But when I was about nine, I stood on a soccer ball. I don't remember why I stood on a soccer ball, but it didn't end well. <laughs> Anything to do with sport doesn't end well for me. The only, I played soccer once and I scored a goal. And I got the pennant at the end of the year, you know, the blue one, and I had it on my bedroom wall for years and years, but I. I didn't really deserve the pennant because the goal went in the wrong goalposts. <laughs> it was an own goal. So I can, just, I can still remember it, seeing suddenly there are the goals. That's what we kick through, isn't it? There's nobody in the way. Let's just go for it. <laughs> Terrible. I don't remember why I stood on a soccer ball. I was in my front yard and I stood on it and fell off really heavily and landed on my arm and it broke. And it broke there, both bones, so that I, it was like having an extra wrist because it, it really did, like, poke up like that right there. It was just hideous. <laughs> and it's, it's more of a memory of pain. No, it's more of a painful memory than a memory of pain because I, I can remember how hideous it looked, but I can't remember how excruciating it was, but I assume it was. My grandmother was visiting us at that time and she attempted to reassure me reassure me and I can I can st- I can remember her saying it's all right it's going to be fine I don't even think it's broken now <laughs> I was 9 and this is 50 years ago. I, I may not be remembering that correctly, but I, that's what I still remember. And I can remember my little nine-year-old going, brain going, I have huge respect for my grandmother. She was the formative person in my life. And I can remember myself thinking, I reckon you're wrong, Grandma. I, <laughs> I, I don't think this is going well at all. So if, if assurance is a promise given to give us courage and strength. Reassurance is not that. Reassurance is something said to allay fear. Reassurance is, it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about it. That's reassurance. It's, It's given to allay fear. It's not a promise. Two weeks, three weeks maybe, after standing on the soccer ball, I had my arm in plaster and we went to the, to the hospital to get it, see how it was going, I suppose, the checkup. And the doctor said to my parents in my hearing, unfortunately the bone is not mending correctly. And then he gave an assurance. He said, it will be fine, but we're going to break it again and reset it. And at that point, I wanted reassurance, <laughs> but none was offered. All he gave us was assurance. I promise you it will be all right. He didn't say anything like, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. And, and I remember, again, I'm only nine, but I still remember this with startling clarity. There was a screen, it was smallish, and I could see my bones. Now, I guess it was some sort of portable bedside x-ray machine which seems a bit odd, but you've got to remember this is 50 years ago and medicine was a little bit different back then. And without any anaesthetic and very little warning, the doctor broke my arm. (laughs) It absolutely happened. But as I say, medicine was a very different thing 50 years ago. Did anybody of my sort of age ever watch that movie, Uh, I Can Jump Puddles? Yes, if you saw that movie, you know that 50 years ago, medicine was a very different thing, wasn't it? The doctor offered a promise and the promise was correct. It's fine. It's a little bit like what Peter says in in verse 10 this morning. After you have suffered a little while, your bones will be strengthened. The doctor couldn't reassure me because the pain was on its way, but he did assure my parents and I. Do you see the difference now? They're very different things. However, the great appetite of the human heart is not for assurance. It's for reassurance. Really, humanity wants reassurance. We always want to know that everything's okay. Just nearly every movie that you watch says that, doesn't it? It says, it's all okay. Just be fine. Don't worry about anything. You know when the doctor says, or the dentist, and they say, having a bit of a medical theme this morning, the dentist says they're going to give you an anesthetic and they always say, just a little sting. <laughs> they're trying to be reassuring, aren't they? They're trying to reassure you. They're trying to allay your fear. But have you ever noticed, like you're lying like this, the reason they tilt you right back like this is so that you can't see. It's not so that they can see, it's so you can't see. Because while they're doing that, have you ever noticed how you never get to see the needle? They they go like this. They sneak it up here out of the line, and they bring it up like that so that you can't see it. And if you ever look at that needle, it's a whopping big thing. I've seen ones that have those two two rings for your fingers and a ring for your thumb, as though you were going to put spack filler in a wall or something. You know, the dentist does not want you to see that. What you should do next time you're in the chair is just when you think he's doing that, have a look. <laughs> It'll frighten him. Like I think the dentist... Are there any dentists with us? Great. I think it's time we got our own back on the dentist a little bit and give them a good scare. Have a good, have a good look at the needle. I once had to have a... Um, I, can, I can do this because last week... There was some, confu- some pastoral confusion. <laughs> Do you remember? Neither of our venerables could decide who was meant to venerate or something. <laughs> and, and David told me, I, comment, I complimented David on what I thought was a really superb sermon. I enjoyed it greatly. And he said to me that he just thought all he might have done was perhaps relied a little. More heavily on illustration than usual, so I'm going to do that too. (laughs) If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. I once had to have uh, this has got nothing to do with anything, okay? Last time I spoke, Matt Matt said he thought it was the most one of my most in line and direct messages. Not much wandering. Well, that's not going to happen, Matt. (laughs) We're wandering already. So I had to have this lumbar puncture, and and and. On, there was all this equipment on this little thing, and there was a needle. It was about that long. It, I'm not exaggerating. It was just enormous. They didn't use it. I don't know what it was there for. It was probably for—I don't know. It might have been for sucking up all the blood off the floor. Or something. But it was this big, and it was th- thick as my finger. now wasn't. But it was just like—it was just the most terrifying thing. Why they put it on the tray, I do not know. Maybe maybe it was a a doctor that had previously been a dentist or something like that. (laughs) We crave... Back on track. We crave... We crave reassurance. People, the human heart just wants reassurance all the time. But I've got to say, reassurance is not at the core of Christian faith at all. God will assure us, he assures us, he promises us but he doesn't reassure us. And this is so important to understand. As we've listened to 1 Peter expounded beautifully through the weeks, we've seen Peter laying down line by line the assurance that God gives us. And it's rigorous, it's full of detail, discipline, obedience. It speaks about... Adversity, and it ends up, as we find today, in guaranteed triumph. Let me read to you uh, verse 8 and 9 from this morning's reading. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Do you hear any reassurance in that? I don't. Resist him steadfast in your faith for you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. That's not reassuring at all. And the reason for that is that God's promise to us is only valid when we live in the new covenant. It's only valid when we're living the exchanged life. It's only valid when... We are living Christ's life, not our own life. You remember that Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I that live but Christ that lives in me and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. Our life is over. We've been crucified with Christ as believers. That's what baptism signifies. And we no longer live our own life. We live Christ, Christ's life working out within us. The Christ life, the exchanged life, is, is well able to receive God's assurance and walk forward through whatever. See, we are followers of Christ. And so we walk his path. And what was his path like? His path was not reassuring, was it? His path was demanding. It required sacrifice. It required suffering to the point where we read that he he bled through his skin at one point with the the angst of what lay ahead of him. There's nothing reassuring about that. We're called to go where he went, to do what he did, to live a life that isn't ours, that's his. Ironically... If we turn away from God's call and we live our own life, a a life without salvation, a life without God's call, if we live that life, we find ourselves desperately seeking reassurance. It's curious, isn't it? There's a very potent example of this in, um, in the book of Matthew. You might remember that there's a point at which John is in prison. He's been put in prison, John the Baptist, Incidentally, do you know what John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Same middle name. <laughs> John's been put in prison. <laughs> John's been put in prison. You shouldn't laugh about this. This is serious. Because of his courage in in addressing power. He's speaking to power and saying you're living, you're living in immorality and he's thrown in prison. And then a very strange thing happens. John calls some disciples of his and says, go to Jesus and say, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? It's in Matthew 11. Isn't that extraordinary? John the Baptist who, who was the prophet, a voice in the wilderness declaring the coming of the Lord. He is the, the, the one about Jesus, of whom Jesus says, nobody, I can't put the words together properly, nobody before now has been as good as John the Baptist, that sort of thing. He, Jesus holds him up in this very high place and we know that John lived a, a, an incredible life, rigorous, demanding, in the desert, wearing a camel hair shirt and all that stuff. And yet, having told the world that this is the Messiah, here he is, He then says to the person that he has announced, are you the one? Isn't that amazing? Are you actually the one? Or should we be looking for someone else? Think about that. There's something quite awful about that. It's it's as though John, the great evangelist, has been shaken. It's as though he's lost his bearing. You might almost say he's, he's wondering about his faith. Jesus replies... I'll read it to you. Go back and report to John what you he, see, what you hear, and see. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't pay him a visit. He's his cousin after all. You, you sort of think, after everything that John has done in the service of Christ, Christ might respond by going to find his his servant that's in such need. But he doesn't. He says, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. When John heard that reply, I imagine that he would have immediately heard Jesus saying that at some other point possibly when Jesus was a young man or a young child reading in the temple. Do you remember that incident? John may have been there, I reckon, but I'm not really sure. It doesn't say that. You just think, well, possibly. They were cousins after all. I was always with my cousins when I was a young boy. But at some point, I reckon John would have heard Jesus reading from Isaiah 61 or whatever it was called back then, And if he hadn't heard Jesus, he certainly would have known this scripture himself. This is what Jesus said in Luke 4, when he was little. See if you can see the difference. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and the the, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. Do you notice that when Jesus sends a message back with the disciples to John, he completely leaves out, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner. He completely leaves out the second thing, to set the oppressed free. Isn't that extraordinary? He's replying to John who's in prison and Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage and says, look at what's happening in the world. Look at what the Messiah is doing but he, he leaves off the crucial thing about setting prisoners free. There's John in prison, and Jesus leaves off the words, set the prisoner free. I think that's extraordinary. It's not very reassuring, is it? I think it's, it's as though Jesus were saying to John something like this, if I do not save you from this, am I still your saviour? It's conjecture. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine how John would have received that. When he's crying out for reassurance, he doesn't get it. It's as though Jesus said to John, if I do not fulfill this messianic prophecy in your life, he said, I'm doing it. I'm I'm doing all sorts of things in everybody else's life. But if I don't fulfill the messianic promise in your life, John, am i still the messiah for you it's a profound thing isn't it he's saying to john will you surrender your will to my will and incredibly the very last line that jesus sends there's one more sentence that he sent his jesus has sent john's disciples back to john the last thing he says is this Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Well, we normally think of stumbling on account of temptation or stumbling on account of our sin or stumbling on account of deception or whatever. We don't normally talk about stumbling on account of Jesus, do we? But Jesus is saying to John, you're blessed. The the older versions of the Bible say you're blessed if you're not offended by me. And I think this is one of the most astonishing things that I've I've read in the New Testament. And it's so demanding, but it fits to me entirely with what Peter is saying to us, which is that if we follow the Saviour, there will come with absolute certainty times of trial and suffering. You'll be called upon to endure and to walk through the very same things that Jesus walked through to follow him into the storm, to follow him towards the cross. And God's assurance to us, not his reassurance, God doesn't say it's not going to hurt, his assurance to us is that after you've suffered a little while, I will indeed strengthen you. I will lift you up. And for this reason, Peter writes in chapter 6 of our reading today, and I I realise I'm jumping from one part of the reading to another. David David delivers it all just so beautifully, one line after, but I don't know how to do that actually, and so it's a bit jumbled. But in verse 6 of this morning's reading, Peter writes, "Humble Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. That's the key. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. We had uh, uh, on our table when our children were little, we had this little box. It was made of um, clear, resiny plastic. might have been made of wood once upon a time. And in it it had all these little cards and it was called a promise box. Does anybody... Remember a promise box? Have you ever had one? And the idea is that at family devotion or during the dinner, one of the kids picks out the promise at the front of the box and puts it at the back after they've read it. And in the box were 40 different cards. Of all the promises that God gives us in Scripture, that's a good idea. Build ourselves up and remember the good things that God has promised us. However, there's a downside to that. Because I think it's a mistake if we're trying to control the course of our life by reciting a scripture or reminding God of what's meant to happen. John in prison, I hope, didn't get the promise card out that says, God will set the captive free, and read it, 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 it, because it didn't work. Shortly after, John is killed in a horrible way. He's, he's decapitated. You know that. As a prisoner, he was never set free, not from that prison. I don't think he read the promise over and over and over, hoping that God would... I think he... I think he and I'm, 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 I'm just imagining, but I think he, he heard what the Spirit was saying to him and he allowed his will to be surrendered to the will of God. And that's the, that's the lesson that we must take hold of, that we must let our will be surrendered to the will of God. And that's such a hard thing to learn. This is why the, letter begin, the, the passage begins, today's passage, with this division between elders and young believers. And elders have to conduct themselves this way and the young people have to respect it because there's such a difference between juvenile faith and mature faith. The Jesus that you meet isn't the Jesus that you know after many years, and I'm not suggesting Jesus changes. We change. The call is different to the calling, in a sense. We're called. We're called to follow Jesus, and it's 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 a joy. It's a it's just a miracle. So often, isn't it, just that the the deliverance and the salvation and the, and the freedom that we experience? But as we walk with Christ, we begin to realise there's also A struggle of wills going on. Will it be his will or will it be my will? And we learn to surrender. And so Peter writes to both groups and and says to the young people, you need to respect the older people because they have learned more than you. They've seen something that you can't yet imagine. We have an innate human desire for self-preservation and that will be challenged by Jesus. If you walk with him, he'll challenge that. He'll say, who's really in charge? Is it me or is it you? Are you going to be forever discontent with your life or are you going to accept that your life is a gift from me to you and I'm giving you all you need to live it? Are you going to constantly beg me to change your circumstance or are you going to live where I've placed you with the gifts of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit that I've provided for you? And that struggle is lifelong. Surrendering really is the only way. And although although John dies horribly, isn't the verse that I read, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up in due time. Isn't that exactly what happens? John dies and he is ultimately lifted up. He's All the devil can do at his worst is push John further into the hands of God. Would you agree? It's fulfilled. John humbles himself to the purpose of God and God lifts him up. Now, I'm not suggesting that the only time God ever rescues us is when we die. That's not it at all. It happens over and over and over again in life. Constantly, Paul writes in one place, I die daily. Every day we face things that that cause us to lose life and yet God replenishes life within us. The experience of resurrection life is constant. God quickens our mortal body, it says in Romans. Sorry. As our faith grows, we're nearly done. As our faith grows, so does the awareness that God is calling us to a narrow path, a road of discipline, a road that will travel through trials. In the very, very first verse of today's reading, Peter introduces himself to us again as a person who has travelled a journey. He said, I, I've, I saw Christ's suffering. I've, I've walked the path of faith for a long time. In effect, he's saying, believe me because I know what it is to tread on the the heights of joy and I also know what it is to walk in the valley of suffering. And that is Christian life. God replenishes us. God, God fills us with strength. God gives us, through his Spirit, everything we need to will and to work. Remember that beautiful verse from Philippians? God gives us all we need to follow him, to serve him, to be disciples of Christ. And he promises us. This is the last verse of our reading today, or the second last. I'm going to read it one more time and and close here. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, support, strengthen and establish you. It's a daily experience, it's a monthly experience, it's an annual experience, it's it's the experience of a lifetime to know that when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, when we surrender to, to his will, he will restore, support, strengthen and establish us. That's what it means to live in assurance. It does not mean that we go to God to get reassured or to each other. It means that we trust God that the valley leads to the mountain and that he will lift us up. Amen. Will you stand with me as we pray while the uh, musicians come back to lead us? At the end of our meeting this morning, there'll be uh, people um, from our team who will be happy to pray with you. They'd love to hear any need on your heart and, and bring that in prayer to God's throne. Let's just pray together. Lord, we stand before you this morning, recognizing you as the Lord forever and ever the God of power, the God of resurrection. Lord, our our prayer is that you would give us grace to live humbly with you, to surrender our will to you. That, Lord, you would use us, that you'd take our ordinary human life and, and use it to bring grace into this world, into our homes, into our family, into the lives of those that we meet. That, Lord, that you would indeed lift us up. We honour you, Lord, because you are God almighty, everlasting. Amen.